Welcome to Learn or Be Learned. We've been working on this project for a while now, and we're finally ready to share it with you. It's been under works for a good minute, and if you're on YouTube or Spotify, congratulations, you're watching the first video podcast of Learn or Be Learned. This is the setup that I've been working on. This is the other project for season two. Season two is going to have video podcasting, but before that, this is the mini-series about real estate and real estate investing, mindset, all of that with my two good buddies that are great realtors. They share not only their mindsets about buying your first home, buying your first rental property, you know, the mindset of scaling and money and, and how all this works, but it's also the first time that we got to do a big project together, got to do a whole video podcasting, and I learned a lot. That's kind of why this whole, that's why everything's been so you know, inconsistent, I could say. So, you know, I appreciate your patience and your support and, you know, sharing these videos and, and episodes. And uh, I'm really excited to share this with you guys, honestly. And, you know, please let me know what you guys think. And, you know, without further ado, let's get right into this mini series, six episodes. We actually recorded them all in one batch. And, uh, you know, rookie mistake, live and learn. But I cut them in segments, but I didn't properly address the ending of each episode. So some of the episodes are like, some of the episodes have a, oh, all right, catch you in the next episode. And then some of them are just cut right there abruptly. So, you know, live and learn, but I think it was still really awesome, which I'd love to hear what you guys think. And, you know, without further ado, let's jump right into it. Thanks. All right, so welcome back, friends. So here we are with episode two of the mini series, continuing onwards with my friend Ramu and Nithin, the realtors that you may or may not have saw from the episode prior. I highly recommend you guys go check that out if you haven't seen it yet, if you are just now seeing this one. That one where we kind of had the more intro of what they do, the ideologies and the mindsets behind how they do what they do. And here we're moving forward to the last question we asked on the last episode, which was, what should someone do to buy a home? What do they need to know? What do they need? What are things that people don't even expect that maybe they say, hey, Ramu, I want to buy a house. And you're like, great, I need this and this. And they're like, what? I didn't, I didn't know that, right? It's like, oh no, like that's going to take me a while, right? So what are some things people can prepare for when they're ready to buy a home? Absolutely. I think the first thing you can do is find a good realtor or real estate team to work with. Their guidance is gonna really support you in this whole process. But we happen to be realtors, so we're gonna be happy to share with you guys what, those, what some of those things are. I'd say, first and foremost, you wanna go and get a pre-qualification done. A good realtor is going to have somebody they can refer you to that will get you a complimentary pre-qualification. Now, Depending on the lender you go to, you can request them to do a soft check. Make sure they do not do a hard check on your credit when they do your pre-qualification. Especially if you intend on buying a home from a builder, like a new home, their lender is going to do another pre-qualification, which might or might not be a hard check. And what does that entail? Is that a pull on your credit score? It's a pull on your, A hard check is a pull on your credit score, which drops you a couple of points. And the interesting part is in the home buying process, if everybody pulls your score a hard check, they can 
from the beginning to end, if it's in a like 30 to 60 day period, it can drop you from one category to the lower category of credit scores. Oh, wow. Because in, in home buying, your credit score categories are not as broad stroke as like a FICO score or what you see on Credit Karma. They're much more narrow. They're like 20 points, 30 points apart. And so it really does have that ability to drag you down. So you first and foremost, you want to make sure that you get a soft credit check. So you know how much home you can afford. For the pre-qualifications, right? When you- so the pre-qualification is like their ticket into the market without it they can't shop it's like if you hear what me and rob is saying like shop for homes what that is basically saying is like let's imagine you're going grocery shopping and your budget is for that week uh, for that trip is like 50 dollars. that 50 dollars is your pre-qualification saying you're in there to shop for items up to 50 dollars. the pre-qualification it's a letter one page letter that basically allows you to understand this is the budget that i'm staying in this is what i can afford so people don't go around looking at like million dollar homes when in reality you can't even get closer to like 800,000. So that's where it creates that like transparency for the buyer because that is step one. The step one is- And seller. Seller, exactly. Because seller wants to know the confidence that this person has already been validated, has already been checked off in that system so that they are ready to buy. Otherwise, it's a waste of the time for the buyer, except for the seller as well, for everybody involved. So <clears throat> going back to your point, one, realtor, second is pre-qualification. But yeah, keep it. Absolutely. The another thing is from the time you start looking, especially from the time you sign a contract to the sign you buy the home, you do not want to change jobs, make any large purchases or do anything else that can affect your credit score or your credit worthiness or your debt to income ratio. So that includes loans, credit cards, things like that. Absolutely. Do not open a new credit card. When you're shopping for a house, do not go and buy furniture for your house until after you've bought the home. The number of stories, horror stories that we hear as realtors where clients are not informed and they'll buy a beautiful home that they're qualified for and about to move. And they go to one of these wonderful stores, furniture stores, open up a new credit line and buy a bunch of furniture to be delivered the day after they sign the contract. Well, guess what? They go to the closing table and they run the final credit check and they go, your income to debt ratio has changed. You have new lines of credit. You are denied for the loan. Right. Because they were preparing for the house. They made those purchases. Correct. Wow. Here's a fun fact. If you buy a car first, millennials especially, right? Millennials, younger millennials, older Gen X. uh, If you are in the market looking to buy a home soon, do not buy a car first. Buy a house first. Okay. If you buy a house, you can buy a car the day after and they will give you a loan. You can buy a car whether you can afford it or not. The, the manufacturer will finance it for you, yeah. right? But lending laws for homes are so strict that they will not finance it for you unless you really meet all the qualifications. There's no shortcuts, no loopholes. Right. You might be able to get some favors, but you cannot get past the affordability of a home to purchase it, especially after 08. There are several laws on the state and federal level to prevent those errors that led to the financial meltdown in 08, 09. So actually, real quick, I want to take a step back. Right. So even before someone's ready to buy a home. 
how much money should they have saved up and how long should they expect this whole process to take, right? So someone might say, I want to buy a home, but they're actually looking to buy a home in a month. They should have started earlier, right? So when is a good time to start and how much should they really have ready? Perfect. So um, the way you can think about that is it depends on what your financial standpoint is, where you stand. Um, but in Omni specifically Austin as a market, because I'm familiar in Austin, um, in Austin market, the average home is priced around like 560s in the 600s. Now, the Austin Metro is where predominantly what people hear about is like Austin Metro. And Austin Metro is made up of five counties. You have Travis County, Williamson County, Hayes, Caldwell, and Bastrop. Of the entire year, like in 2021, it was like around $24 billion of like uh, homes, townhomes, anything real estate related got exchanged between like a buyer and a seller. Um, that's where the 565 average comes from. So in Austin, if you're a buyer who could afford to buy a home in Austin, the average much the average money you need on hand is based on two things, very fundamental things, down payment and cash to close. Those two things added up is the how much cash you need to have on hand in order to purchase a home. So usually sometimes uh, people think about putting down payments like 20%. If you're a first time home buyer, it's like you, know, you can sort of go back and forth on three to five percent. But down payment is the biggest figure. You need to have down payment saved up. Uh, if you're a first time home buyer, you can get an FHA loan for like different categories and you have to talk to the lender on like what the price point is for those homes. But in Austin specifically, I have seen clients put up to like $100,000, $200,000 to buy a home. And real quick with the FHA loan, that's basically when a first time home buyer can put down like 3.5 or something like that instead of 20%. You know how we mentioned me and Ram were not lenders, right? So it, it, the thing is, it depends on the person. The person can talk to the bank and the bank can create a product or a package that is tailored directly for the lender. I mean, for the, uh, the loan applicant. So that's sort of my perspective on it. My perspective is... Fork up the extra one and a half percent, put five percent down and go with the conventional loan. Don't go with an FHA. Uh, the first loan, the first mortgage I got was an FHA because I was, oh, it's the lowest right. money down. Right. FHA has two fees on it. Right. But if you go with the five percent conventional, there's only one fee on it. The second, the two fees are very similar. Why are you paying an extra fee? It's actually the amount that you pay ends up being more over the long run than the difference of the down payment. So it's actually not worth it. Mm. It's not actually um, worth, in my personal opinion, right, to do that. So I always encourage our buyers, once I you know, learned more about this from lenders and mortgage loan officers, opt for a conventional loan for 5%. Um, the other thing is, you either put 5% or the next big number, I would say, is 20%. That's when the uh, terms of the loan really start to change. If you put 5 or 10%, your loan terms are similar. They're just different numbers, if that makes sense. At 20%, you're a well-qualified buyer, and suddenly the rates start to shift. Uh, it's more favorable for you, etc., which is why investors are required to put 20% or more into homes. But if it's a primary home, a home you're going to live in, you can buy it for 5%, 3.5%. If you're a qualified veteran, $0 down. Um, and of course, there's other loan structures. With that said, in a competitive market, the cash that you put as a down payment is a form of negotiation 
with the seller because they want to see that you're um, cash plentiful and the more cash you can bring the better qualified you are the lower the risk is because you're taking a lower loan amount and there's more room for them to negotiate because if the home doesn't appraise then you can pay out of pocket now we only did that during covid um, but you know now that uh, things are calming down uh, i don't think we would advise anybody to pay anything over the appraisal amount yeah precisely yeah so something else that they need is a their w-2 or their job right um legal paperwork sorry what is it called tax document, tax or, document. Their, their tax document income statement so you need your pay stubs for um i want to say six pay periods okay. depends on who your mortgage loan uh, officer is um you need two months of all bank statements every bank you own every bank account that you own two months you need uh two years of tax filings and if you're filing with your spouse then they might ask you know, information about them. Uh, several states are community property states, which mean that if it's a primary home and you're married, no matter who's on the loan, the home is in both of your names. It's 50-50. Taking a step back, when you said with the W-2 job, mm-hmm. if you don't, let's say you haven't worked at a W-2 job for two years, so you don't have the two years of tax statements, does that mean you can't get a home till you've worked for a couple years? Uh, not exactly. That's when you get into creative financing. Like, there's people, investors who have never had a double two job can still buy homes. Right. It just Correct. depends on who's like, if you're doing financing, if you're buying cash purchase, fine. Like, if you're doing financing, banks tend to go by the book. Like, they're very black and white about like who it is, and that really comes down to relationship with the banker and stuff like that. But on a like, like unique one to one basis, it really depends on the person who you are. You you can do it with a cosigner. Right. You might have a parent that'll co-sign the home for you. And what does that mean? That means they are a co-borrower. If you fail to pay, they are liable to pay. And so they're actually giving the loan based off of your co-borrowers. Right. Creditworthiness, not yours. Right. And they're boosting it. Right. So right. you can sign the home loan together. The idea is, is that you take care of it in that in the absence that you're able to take care, not able to take care of it. The bank will go to your co-borrower for the payments. It's similar, uh, although not the same, but similar to maybe a co-authorized user on like a credit card, right? So you're borrowing someone else's credit worthiness to actually obtain that card. And if you can't pay it off, then the authorized, you know, the person that authorized you as a user would have to pay that off. Kind of. Because in a credit card, um, the main card holder is responsible for the credit card no matter what. The authorized user is usually employee child or something like that so they're not actually responsible to pay it's similar it's a great um, model to understand the concept but it is not a one-to-one so the accountability and payments is still on you it's it's gets to the point where you you imagine a foreclosure or things of where it's like to the the real dire about to lose the house and the first person is like completely bankrupt then the bank will go to the next person it's like you're acknowledging that in case something happens to the signer one then signer two will step into place So that's a way to get it if you don't have two years of uh, history of work experience. You can have a co-borrower. And I guess let's take even one more step back, right? Because I guess I realized, you know, not everyone is in the position to buy a home. So what are some good practices that someone can do 
maybe to up their credit score, or maybe maybe they don't even have a credit score, right? So what are some things that people should put in the back of their mind to up their financial stature in order to buy a home, right? Because they're not going to give a loan to anybody. You have to show, like you said, two years of tax returns or some proof that you know you know what you're doing. You're not just someone who's going to take their money and run, right? So right. what are some things that people should have already been working on or should work on if that's what their goal is? My favorite advice for building your credit score and credit worthiness is advice it was the first and probably the only set of advice my dad gave me. I love it. I repeat it to all my friends, everybody, anybody that'll listen. Never right? told me. <laughs> I guess you never asked. <laughs> so okay. on this podcast, I found out we're not friends. <laughs> yes. No. <laughs> He's finally. Like, finally got through to you. <laughs> no, you, I, actually, after I say this, you might have actually heard me say this already. Okay. So we'll see. Get a credit card, right? And that's how you're going to build your credit worthiness. Pay your credit card off in full every month and don't spend money you don't have. Yeah. Two rules. And that was it. And I said, anything else? He goes, no. I was like, what about the minimum usage and all of that? He said, if you pay it off every month, you don't have to worry about it. Mm-hmm. It's great advice. And that's what I did. My credit score is very strong. And after a couple of years, the banks really love you and they start upping your credit limit. Mm -hmm. And when you have a big credit limit and you're able to show usage and that you have a zero balance, credit score looks good. Now, here's something interesting that people, first time home buyers don't realize. Your FICO score, your Credit Karma credit score are not the same level of scores that are gonna pull up when you apply for a mortgage loan. Mm -hmm. They use much stricter standards. So you might think that you have excellent credit and the bank is going to come back and say, you got good credit. No, no, I have excellent credit. (laughs) No, you got good credit. (laughs) The first time I found out, I was actually offended. (laughs) I was like, I have excellent credit. Ram was actually just sharing a personal story of a phone call he had with his banker. (laughs) No, I have great credit. (laughs) You don't know. Yeah. So what, what is exactly different then? What are they not looking at? It's not that they're not looking at it. They just have higher, stricter standards right. uh, to prevent what happened in 08. And that's right. actually okay. You just have to be mentally prepared. Whatever you think your credit score is, knock it down like a category. <laughs> um, and kind of start there. But the pre-qualification process is going to open up all of that for you. Then you're going to get an idea of what that number is, etc., Uh, Your lender is obligated to share that information with you, complimentary if they pull your uh, credit. So ask, just ask. They'll share it with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we have work on your credit score, right? Save up. How much should someone generally save for... If you have a $60,000 saved up, you'll be able to buy a decent home. Okay. and should be able to get you somewhere. Everything is relative. Right, right. But just like an idea, a number, right? Someone can start working with. Uh, Austin is like, I need at least like 100K. Save it up. So if you're looking at a, but but the Austin market are not starter homes, right? Yeah, so understand. These are like the, my forever home. And we can totally get into that in the next, right? Topics of, you know, houses that you should buy or shouldn't buy or rentals that you should first buy, time home buy. buyers right and, yeah. and i think austin's a great example of that kind of market 
Um, but in terms of, let's say, like, you know, someone wants to buy their first house, you know, work on your credit score, save up a decent amount for at least five, if not 20% down payment. Um, now, so let's say we have all that, we're ready to go. Who do I contact? Where do I go from here? Should I, you know, just type in Google best realtors around me? Like, how does someone go about this? I, if I could jump in on that, mm -hmm. uh, it's going back, it goes back to what Ramu said. It's first to find a realtor. You can start on Google. That would be a great search. Um, but at the end of the day, once, you, once you're on the phone with the realtor, you need to understand what their motives are through just like interviewing them. It's like you're hiring them for a job. You know, right. you're going to get them in a con under contract to work with you as an exclusive agent. So you got to make sure, let's say Google search, best realtors in Austin. And whatever comes up, call them. Or even just do some more research and like maybe talk to your family and friends, see you know, who they worked with, and try to get referrals from there. Do, the, do your homework and try to figure out who the right realtor is. To know who the right realtor is, you got to ask some key questions, which is, why do you want to help me? You know, what's your intentions? And how do you support me in my weakest moments, right? Why do you want to help me? What are your intentions? And how can you help me during like the... like? A, how would you answer? How What are your intentions? So my... Like, you know how I kept mentioning... <laughs> that seems like, like a very interesting question to ask a realtor. <laughs> it is. It is. Because like, I think that draws out the picture of like, if the realtor is doing for the real deal or not. Like for me, you know how I'm in the end goal. Like my end goal is to make sure the family that's moving in, their story still sustains. And their story still val validated. Like one of my uh, friends that I met through my leadership program, her name is Jill... She says uh, she sold one house four times. And she says every time. Yeah, literally, I, I had the same reaction. I literally had the same reaction, right? So you know what caught me off guard is when she says, like she's telling the story about like how many times she sold this home. And she says every time she steps into the room, she's like, in this room, there were four different memories of like four different people experiencing four different things. Same home. So she's like the blind canvas of like the way you draw the story, right? So that's like, if, you, if a realtor can say that's my intention without like saying that old thing, then people can understand that. If you're genuine, it will come through normally. If you're trying to sell something, that also comes through very quickly. Those three questions are very tough. Like people who are not expecting to answer those questions will, will, be, will be the ones you get beat it out. Who will be the ones who does not get the aspect of helping a client buy a home or sell a home. There's another aspect of you get what you pay for. So you actually don't pay your buyer's agent. The seller pays your buyer agent. So they actually, your realtor, after you sign with them, technically works for you for free until someone else pays them when you make a decision. So that's something important to note. Now, it's very popular nowadays to come to realtors and say, how much money are you going to give me back from your commission towards my closing cost? You will get what you pay for. If you go and say, hey, I want you to take only half, don't expect full service. If you go to somebody and says, Take 1% and they say, okay, on the first go, you're probably not going to get a lot of service. If you go with an agent that, you know, for example, and I've heard, I've heard this actually, uh, just take $1,000 and return everything else to you. They will do nothing but sign on the dotted line. They are just there in name. They will not support you. They probably don't know the local laws. They probably don't know. Sorry to say this, they probably don't know what they're doing. They're just signing some paperwork because they have a license and it's a quick thousand bucks for them, but they don't value their own time and they're definitely not going to be good at representing you. If you want proper representation, yes, you do need to interview people. And after that, if, if somebody's giving you heavy concessions, know that you're not going to be represented well and you might lose out somewhere else that could cost you more than your savings. Yeah. And to add on to exactly what he was talking about, 
the way you can understand that is when you ask those questions or whatever questions you want to ask them, based on the way they respond, you can understand what value they're bringing to the table, right? Um, there is a need that you have, which is buying a home. And how can you fulfill that need, which is through the values we bring to the table? We're good at sales. We're good at negotiating. We're good at tough situations. We are your filter to the world. Like, Correct. You know, when you think about having a team member on your side, you are the buyer. Like This is specifically for buyers. Buyers going into a sales room with a, and there's a sales consultant there. That sales consultant, even if they are trained to be nice, respect for the five out of five customer service, on legal paperwork, they are not representing you. They're representing the seller. And that distinction cannot be established because you know we're social creatures. We'll always like we'll build up friendships really quickly. Mm-hmm. So we are that filter for you. Like we will show up to that room and we will stand by your side regardless of which way you move. Like that's like that fine line is what makes like realtors and real estate consultants and real estate agents very valuable. And that's why those are full service agents that will come out that will get the, what they're paid for. Versus those who don't get paid for, as he's mentioned, the ones who collect concessions, discounts, they really don't want to be that extra level of service. They don't want to put in the legwork. They want to put put on their shoes and go out into the dirt and show the fact that this is what the home looks like and get yeah. their f- f- shoes dirty, right? Uh, those who can actually, the one way that I find out if a realtor is really, really like into into the uh, thick and thin, is if you look at their shoes, if it's polished all the time, that could be an intention that it may maybe not may not be going out as much. If your shoes are dirty, then that could be also an intention. Is like that this person's like just, just where, is that why your shoes are dirty? <laughs> actually, my, I just go walk around in some dirt. <laughs> I don't know. That is actually one of the things I noticed is because uh, like one time a a real I was going to showing. From a uh, from a, a showing to another showing, and one of the realtors was saying, we're doing hoping now. It's like I know you're uh, your realtor just by looking at my shoes. It was like really beaten up with like dirt, and it was like the, the, those type of mementos and like you know things are really something you catch up on. But also at the end of the day, it's like the story that they can tell you um, is something that really I believe in. Right. That's exciting. Yeah. That's thank you for sharing. So I I just want to interject real quick. What I'm picking up here is. When someone is looking for a realtor, right, this is typically, it's, it sounds like this is the middleman. This is the person that is going to connect you with the dream that you're looking for, right, with the expertise that they have. They're the ones that are kind of guiding you in the direction that you want to go but don't know where to start. And we're talking about the vetting process and looking at, right, so how do I find the right realtor? And what it sounds like to me is that the right realtor, right, is essentially, is it someone who is more socially and emotionally compatible with you? Someone who understands you, understands your needs, and understands what you want? Or do you think someone who is just really good at their job, but, you know, obviously doesn't have as much time for you because they have way bigger clients than to deal with your first time home buying, like, problems right so what do you think is a better indicator of a good fit realtor for you is it someone with social connection or uh social proof which would be their experience you know what they know and everything if somebody doesn't have experience i think that speaks for itself and if somebody has experience then that speaks for that self you need to find somebody that has experience that understands you somebody with experience that ignores you is not helpful Right? Anybody that ignores you is not helpful. But a new person who's very eager, that's okay, right? Provided that they have guidance. If they say, I just got my license last month, and ask them, what brokerage are you with? 
Who is your mentor? What are you doing? You know, how are you going to serve me being a new real estate agent? And they have to come back and say, well, I have a real estate coach. I have a mentor at the office. Mm. Truth be told, I'm going to be, you know, every time I don't know the answer to a question, I want to call my broker. Great. Then you can work with them because you understand that that team is supporting this individual. Right. But if they come back and go, I'm going to do my best and that's all they got. You might want to keep looking at other options. You know, there's nothing wrong with new agents. Everybody's new, right, at some point. But do they have a system that's backing them? Do they have a big brokerage that's good at training and support? Um, Or, you know, that's something that you need to check. And, of course, you want somebody, ideally, who's been through the thick and thin, who's been in the industry for many years, uh, focused in that sub-market, and somebody you can relate to and click with. Now, something that's very important to understand is if you're looking for your realtor to be your buddy, that is not a qualification for employment, right? How buddy-buddy you are with your realtor does not speak anything about the quality of the job that they're going to do or how well they will meet your needs. That's just a social connection. So what are you saying? It might not always be in your best interest to just immediately run to your friends if they're the ones that are do, like they're the realtors or something? No, if they're your friends, go to your friends, right? They, they, they are going to have your best interest at mind right. more than anybody else because they got to see you at a party next month. If they screw up, they got to live with the consequences. Right. So they're actually pretty good to go with. What I'm saying is if you're moving to a new city, you're shopping around, you'd rather go with somebody who may be a little bit more stoic and experienced as opposed mm-hmm. to chatty and friendly and will go out to lunch with you but might not understand the market that social connection you can be their friend you know but they need to know their job